Well, happy Father's Day weekend. We're glad that all the dads are here with us. If you're a dad, would you stand up so we give you a round of applause and thank you for all your sacrifices, your love, your commitment to us. Let's hear it for the dads, man. So great to have you in church, dads. Way to go. All right, dads, you can sit down. I know you hated every second of that. That was I did that on purpose just to mess with you right then and there. That was so good. I'm so glad that you're here today, not just the dads, but everybody here in the room, also watching us online and on TV, we're thankful that you are a part of the Sagebrush family. If you remember back on Mother's Day, we had a raffle that we did. We're doing one right now for Father's Day as well. And we took the money that we raised for the Mother's Day raffle, and we said we were going to build a church building in Pakistan. Now, I have to tell you the whole story about Pakistan at another time, but it's a God thing right there. To think that we could build a church building in Pakistan is a miracle from God. Well, we immediately sent the money over. They immediately went to work, and I want to show you what $13,000 will build you in Pakistan. Take a look at this. Greetings from Pakistan. This is Mushal and this is Pastor Fraz and some of our team guys. And we're really thankful to the Seth Brush Church in New Mexico for their funds to build the church building, the new church building here in Okada City. So we're really thankful for each and every single person for the support uh, for building the new church here in Pakistan. And I also just thankful uh, to Trailhead International Builders also uh, for their great work. Make God bless you all. That's pretty cool right there, all right? You couldn't even buy the gates for $13,000 in the United States. You can build a whole church building in Pakistan. Those people are so excited, and it's all because of your generosity. So I know a lot of you bought raffle tickets. I know a lot of you lost. Well, you didn't lose, did you? Because you saw that happen as a result. So if you get a chance to buy a raffle ticket for your dad, maybe he'll win the big prize. I don't know if he will or not. But no matter what, that money will go to start another church facility, and God will be blessed as a result of that. All right, I'm glad to be back with you. We're beginning a brand new series called Pressure Point. So let's get into the message today. Uh, there was a man who went to a hardware store and he went down the paint aisle and he picked out some canary yellow paint. He walked over to the guy behind the register, handed him the paint, said that he wanted to buy it. And the guy behind the register said, you know, we don't have many people buying canary yellow paint. Do you mind me asking, what are you buying this paint for? And so the, young, the guy said, well, I'm buying the paint because I got a parakeet. And he sings so beautifully that I want to put him in a contest against a bunch of canaries. So he's got to be yellow for the contest. And the guy behind the way, he said, you've got to be kidding me right now. You can't put paint on a bird. The paint is toxic. You'll kill the bird. He said, no, I won't. Paint won't hurt that bird. Guy behind the register said, I'll bet you $20 that it kills your bird. Guy said, you're on. Well, a couple of days went by, and the guy came back, and he dropped a $20 bill on the register. And the guy said, well, I guess I was right. The paint killed the bird. He said, well, inadvertently, he did okay with the paint, but it was the sanding between the coats that kind of did him in, to be honest with you. 
Friends, some people, they just don't get it, do they? they got to have things spelled out for them. Well, that's why I'm so excited about this new series, because we're going to be studying the book of James. And James kind of spells out how we're supposed to behave as Christians. And this is something that's very timely if you think about it. Because there's lots of people proclaiming the name Christian, but their lives are not Christ-like. Did you know that when you become a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to actually follow Jesus? And yet you see this pervasive in our society today that a lot of people say they have a relationship with God. They just pick and choose how they're going to follow after him. It's like a person who says, hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm never going to get baptized. See, those two things, they just don't make any sense, right? Or somebody says, hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm still sleeping with my girlfriend. Or I'm still sleeping with my boyfriend. Or, hey, I'm a Christian, but you can't believe a word that comes out of my mouth. I mean, I am a liar like you've never met a liar before, right? Or how about this one? I'm a Christian, but I still like to go out on the weekends and party like it's 1999 and get as drunk as I can. There was a book that came out a few years ago by George Barna called Unchristian. He did this study, did this survey, and he found out some interesting things. In the book, he found out that 18 to 42-year-olds, 65% of those surveyed, 18 to 42 years old, said that they had a close and meaningful relationship with God. Now, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? 65%, that's a big number. I wish the survey would have ended right there. But they asked some follow-up questions. Of the 65% that said they had a close and intimate relationship with God, 23% of that 65% said that that, that sex outside of marriage was wrong. 77% said God doesn't have any problem with that. 13% of that 65% said getting drunk is wrong. 87% says that God doesn't have any problem with that. As well, even though the Bible talks about this issue again and again and again. So I'm excited about this. I hope you don't miss a single one of these messages that I'm going to be giving you. And I know it's summertime and you're going to be in and out. You're going to be on vacation, things like that. Here's what's great. I can follow you wherever you go. You can listen to me on the app. You can see us on TV. You can stream us. You can always get the message. So please don't miss a single week because we're going to talk about how we're supposed to behave as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever we do a book study, it's important for us to understand who wrote the book and who the person wrote the book to. So who wrote the book of James? You ready for this? A guy by the name of James wrote the book of James. This is some pretty heady stuff I'm teaching here, to be honest with you. James wrote the book of James. So the question is, which James wrote it? Well, it wasn't James, the one who was one of Jesus' disciples. Are you ready for this? It was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, some of you, you grew up with a tradition that said that Mary had a perpetual virginity. That they never had sexual relations, Mary and Joseph. And so the, Jesus was an only child and there wasn't any other brothers or sisters along the way. And if that's true, don't you feel bad for Joseph right now, to be honest with you, right? But was that what the Bible teaches? Because let me tell you something, friends. The tradition of man never trumps the word of God. 
So what does God's word say about this? Well, Matthew chapter 13, verse 54 says, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Talking about Jesus. They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Hmm. So James is the half-brother of Jesus. Why the half-brother of Jesus? Well, Jesus' heavenly Father was God Almighty, right? The Holy Spirit gave, came conceived in Mary, and they gave birth to the child Jesus, right? And, and so we have a half-brother situation because Joseph was the dad of, of James. Now, here's my question. How would you like to grow up with Jesus being your brother? I think that would be kind of rough, don't you think? I wonder how many times they heard Mary and Joseph say, what would Jesus do? You know what I mean? Why, why can't you be more like Jesus? You know what I'm saying? I wonder how many times they brought the brothers together and all the sisters and they said, listen, we're passing out these bracelets. Everybody put these bracelets on. It's WWJD. Just put those on. Everybody get one, okay? What would Jesus do? When you find yourself in a tough situation, just ask yourself that question right there. I digress a bit, but I wonder if there was ever a time that Jesus left the front door open, and Joseph said, hey, shut the front door. What's wrong with you? Were you born to barn? <laughs> Jesus said, as a matter of fact, I was. I just think those thoughts from time to time. Here's what's interesting. James grows up with a front row seat to, the, to being the half-brother of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you ready for this? He doesn't believe Jesus is who he says he is. In fact, the Bible says that even his brothers didn't believe in him. In fact, there's another passage of Scripture where it says Mary brought the brothers along to take Jesus away because they thought Jesus had lost his ever-loving mind. So here's the question. What caused James to all of a sudden believe that Jesus truly was the Son of God? Well, it's just a hunch. But I have a feeling it has something to do with the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. When your brother rises again from the dead, seems to get people's attention, doesn't it? Look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. From what I received, I passed on to you of first importance that, Jesus, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. So Jesus has a private meeting with James. And don't you wish the Bible told us what the two of them talked about? But it doesn't give us that. But we do know this, as a result of their conversation, James came to the conclusion that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he conquered death, sin, sickness, and the grave, that Jesus had risen again from the dead. So he sits down to write his book, and how does he start his book? He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the way that I would have started my book if I was James. If I am the half-brother of Jesus, I would have said, this is James. Half-brother of Jesus. You know who Jesus is. King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of the ends of the universe. Almighty, all-powerful God. Mess with me, he'll mess with you. That's how I probably would have started it, right? I got the red phone to him. He's going to take care of you. Don't mess with me. I think that's how. No, that's not James. I'm just a servant of God. And of the Lord, 
Jesus Christ. What's the word Lord mean? It means boss. It means ruler. It means that Jesus is the one who calls the shots in his life. You got a brother? You ever called him Lord? Because I can promise you right now there's never been a set of brothers on the face of the earth except for James and Jesus where one of them called the other one the Lord of his life. What do we know what happened to James? Well, we know that James became the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. Did you know that? And he sits down to write this letter to his church that's been scattered. It says, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. James is the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city of about 200,000 people. That's what scholars tell us. And it's estimated by about midway through the book of Acts before persecution came upon the church that half of the city has given their lives over to Jesus Christ. That means James is the pastor of a church over 100,000 strong. And everything's going great. Everything's going wonderful. But if you know anything about history, you know that the Roman authorities, they didn't appreciate Christianity. They wanted to get rid of Christianity as quickly as they possibly could. And so Nero set fire to Rome. And guess who he blamed for the fire? He blamed Christians for setting it. And now all of a sudden it was open season upon the Christians. And these people were tracked down. They were imprisoned. They were beheaded. Nero was such a sick individual that he would sew Christians up in animal skins and during the intermission of gladiator fights he would throw Christians into the arena and he would set wild dogs free and they would rip the Christians apart from limb to limb. If he wanted to see his garden at night he would douse them in oil and he would light a Christian on fire that he had tied to a stake so he could see his garden in the evening. James is writing to his church that's been scattered. They're running For their lives. They've lost everything. They've lost their home. They've lost their livelihood. Some of them have lost their freedom. Some of them have lost their lives. And so right off the bat in the book of James, he's going to answer a question that's on their mind. They want to know something. Why is this happening to us? Here we are being obedient to God, doing exactly what we believe that he wants us to do, and he's allowing this to happen. Why? Why this pain? Why this heartache? How many times in your life have you asked the same question? Here's the interesting thing about James. He doesn't answer the question. He just tells them how they're to live in the midst of the adversity. He says, consider it. Pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work, so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials. There should be a difference And the way a Christian handles adversity from someone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There should be a joy that resonates in our soul. I didn't say happiness. Happiness is based upon what happens to you. But joy, it's much deeper. It's not dependent upon the circumstances or the things that you see. It's joy that gives you a peace that passes all understanding. 
And I want you to see that James tells these people. He doesn't say, well, you know, you might go through some trials. Or it's highly probable that you might go through some trials. Or it's a great possibility that you're going to go through a hard time. No, he says, you're going to go through trials. Hard times are coming. Sometimes you can see the hard times come, and sometimes they just come out of the blue, don't they? There were three guys that were pacing back and forth in a hospital. They were waiting for their wives who were given birth. This is back in the 50s and the 60s when men weren't allowed to go into the birthing rooms. And so they're pacing back and forth, these three guys. Suddenly a nurse busts through the door, and she grabs one of the guys, and she says, Congratulations, your wife just gave birth to twins. He said, that's fantastic, but it's also ironic because I play baseball for the Minnesota Twins. Well, the other guys are listening in. A few minutes goes by, another person, another nurse busts in. She says, I want to tell you, she grabs the young man. She says, your wife just gave birth to triplets. He said, that's overwhelming, but it's also ironic. I work for the 3M Corporation. Well, the third guy, he's just pacing now. Sweat's just pouring from his, from his brow. He didn't know what to do. He's just pacing back and forth, back and forth. Finally, he thinks, I got to get out of here. So he goes over to the door, opens it up, gets ready to leave. And the nurse says, where in the world do you think you're going? Your wife's still in labor. He says, I know, but I drive a truck for 7-Eleven. <laughs> Sometimes you see the problems coming. Sometimes you don't. Can I let you on a little secret? There's going to be times your kids will disappoint you. There's going to be days where your marriage disappoints you. There's going to be moments when you're going to feel like you got an adversary rather than a partner in your married relationship. There's going to be moments when you just don't feel like something's right. You go to the doctor. They come back and they give you a report that's just not good. You're going to face adversity. Sometimes because of a careless whisper. Sometimes because of a a co-worker who's out to get you. Why do we face these things? Because God is molding us and shaping us to be the people that he needs us to be. He's developing our faith even when nothing in our life makes any sense. And when a lost and dying world sees us holding on to God with white-knuckle intensity, regardless of the circumstances of our life, they find that to be unbelievable. They find a depth of faith that they've probably never witnessed or ever seen before. I know that's true in my life. You see, I've had an encounter with the family story that I'm about to share with you. And these people are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, and they've been through it. Let me let them tell you their story. Take a look. I was so blessed to actually be chosen to be Faith's mom. I think it's really easy to say you trust God when things are good. Adversity can either really tear you apart or it can really build you up. It's all the way you look at it. More times than not, that's when we get down on our knees and fold our hands and uh, just lift those questions up to the Lord. My husband and I went for just a typical, normal ultrasound. Proceeded to let us know that our our baby was going to be born with a condition called spina bifida. We prayed together and we came up with the name Faith. Matter of fact, when we told the OBGYN that her name will be Faith, I remember her saying, I haven't even told you the sex of the baby. 
Hi, I'm Faith Kuhn, and I'm 16 years old, and I've had 21 surgeries. We knew that Faith was going to have her spine completely fused. And I remember thinking to myself, where's your mercy? I watched my daughter go through surgery after surgery, and I just never knew why. Why weren't things caught? I mean, I'd been praying all along. Because as parents, you entrust your child to the doctors, and the fact that things were missed were frustrating. I just didn't understand why things didn't necessarily work out the way I would think God would want them to. Before my last surgery, I listened to Even If by Mercy Me. Those lyrics helped me through that exact moment because even if it's not my plan, he's still gonna help me through it. And I remember watching her and just thinking, gosh, she's got the most amazing spirit. It can't be broken. She's never asked, why me? And I think it's helped me not to ask God, why me? I've grown up to say, why not? Why not me? If she can have faith, why can't I have faith? If she can trust God, why can't I trust God? You know, why not it be me to be the one to put her on my shoulders, carry her when she needs to be carried? And it's just a privilege being her father. I would just pray, Lord, forgive me for doubting that you're not going to use this for good. God has used face surgeries to strengthen my relationship, not only with him, but with my with my husband, with my kids. I'm more of a softie. She's made me a better person. 90% of the time, it's her teaching me. She loves the Lord, and she loves being faith. I love to like get out and do things. I love to go to baseball games. I don't know how prepared I am for future hardships, but I know that God's in control. My future is limitless. One day I would love to be a doctor. There's just always wanted to help kids like me. There really is nothing that you go through that is painful that God won't use if you let him. I am blessed every day because faith lets me see life through rose-colored glasses. You're going to have times in your life where it doesn't make a lick of sense. And you're going to look to the heavens, you're going to ask why, and I'm going to tell you for the most part you're never going to get the answer. And you can keep asking the question, and you can be frustrated, or you can ask a better question, and that's what now? What now? What would you have me do in the midst of this? How would you ask me to respond? How could I give you praise? How might I give you glory? How might you strengthen my faith in the midst of this? My goodness, nobody gets out of here unscathed, do they? And it's adversity that God uses to develop us to be the people that he wants us to be. For Noah, the adversity was building that ark that took him 120 years. For Moses, the adversity was leading 2 million slave children out of captivity in Egypt to the cusp of the promised land. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, my goodness, the adversity was a fiery furnace. For David, it was a giant of a man by the name of Goliath. Everybody thought he was too big to defeat. David thought he was too big to miss. Because he knew that the battle belonged to the Lord. For Jesus, the adversity came in the form of a cross. And for Paul, the greatest missionary to ever walk the face of the earth, the adversity came with the thorn in his flesh. 
He writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. To keep me from being conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And three times, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know if you know this or not, but every single person in this room and every person watching at home has a thorn in their flesh. For some of you, it's a physical thorn. And every step is more painful than the one before. For some of you, the thorn in your flesh has a first and a last name. You have an adversary. You have someone who's trying to do you in. Someone who tries to put you down and put it on you every chance that they get. For some of us, the adversity that we face is of our own doing, of our own bad choices and our own bad decisions. And now we're facing the consequences as a result. Here's what I've learned about adversity. There are some lessons that can only be learned in the midst of a storm. You never know that God is all you need till he's all that you've got. I've learned so many lessons in the midst of adversity. I've learned that when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for he is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. I have learned when those moments come when I'm overwhelmed with worry and anxiety that I can cast all my cares upon him because he cares for me. I have learned that when I am weak, he is strong. And I have learned that when all hell is breaking loose around me, that he is the peace that passes all understanding. What do we do when we face adversity? We consider it pure joy. My brothers, because when we face trials, we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. That's what he's trying to develop in us. And perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is trying to develop our perseverance. Why? Because he doesn't want there to be any quit in us. There are too many people who are surprised when hard times come and they give up on God and they give up on themselves. And God doesn't want that for you. God is not a quitter. And if you're a follower of his, then you don't quit as well. You keep holding on to him with white knuckle intensity because God never gave up on you, so you don't give up on him. My goodness, when Adam and Eve blew it, God did not give up. When Moses said, find somebody else to lead the children of Israel out of captivity, God did not give up. When John the Baptist was beheaded, God didn't give up. When the disciples left Jesus to face his execution all alone, God didn't give up. And when Peter denied knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, God did not give up. 
Max Lucado writes, here's to the woman whose husband left her with kids to raise and bills to pay. Yet she tells me every Sunday at church that God has never been closer because she refuses to give up. Here's to the single father of two girls who's learned to braid their hair. Here's to the grandparents who came out of retirement to raise the, ch- the children their children couldn't raise. Here's to the girl who's been told by everyone to abort the baby, who chose to keep the baby. Here's to all the reckless lovers of life and lovers of God who get knocked down from time to time, but they get back up. The choice is simple. We'll either stand up and be counted or we can lay down and we can be counted out. So what do we do in the midst of adversity? The first thing, we need to pray for wisdom. Because James goes on to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Why, why, why does he say we should pray for wisdom? Why shouldn't we pray for strength? Well, friends, there's nothing wrong with praying for strength, but wisdom takes it to a whole nother level, doesn't it? Because you're asking God for wisdom to say, how can I use this for your glory and for my good? Warren Wiersbe tells the story in one of his books about a time he went to the hospital. He went to go visit a family in his church who had just been going through it. The wife had recently suffered a stroke. She still had the effects of the stroke. Uh, The husband was already blind. And and now he had had a heart attack and he was in surgery and they weren't certain if he was going to make it or not. And so Warren sits next to this woman. He says, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God would give you strength. And that sweet woman, she looked at him and she said, I really appreciate that. But could you pray one more thing for me? Would you pray that God would give me wisdom? Because I want to learn everything that he wants me to teach me in the midst of this situation. We need to learn to pray, God, I don't get it. God, it didn't make any sense. And I know your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts are greater than my thoughts, but I'm going to trust you. And I'm asking you to give me wisdom to somehow use this to bring you glory, to somehow use this to mold me and shape me to be the person that you want me to be, to develop within me that defiant faith that says, naked I came in this world and naked I'm going to leave it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You find yourself facing it. You find yourself up against it. Pray. Pray for wisdom. And the second thing is this. Focus on the prize. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I know that many of us are up against it right now, and you're facing terrible, terrible things. I want to remind you of this. This is temporary. What you're facing is temporary. Paul says our troubles are light and momentary compared to the eternal glory that he has for us. Friends, never forget that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Christ Jesus. This is not our home. And we're just passing through. And this is a sin-soaked place where bad things happen to people all the time. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is found in Jesus. We continue to move forward because he continues to move forward. We get back up 
because he got back up. We keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 says it this way. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you don't grow weary and you don't lose heart. Now, if you've been around here for any amount of time, you know I'm not a huge Dallas Cowboy football fan. You already know that, don't you? But I am a huge fan of Emmett Smith. I love Emmett Smith. And he sets the NFL rushing record. He, he ran for more yards than anybody else. So I kind of looked that up because I was impressed with that. And here's what I found. Emmett Smith throughout his whole NFL career only ran 10 and a half miles. Did you know that? I mean, I could run 10 and a half miles. That doesn't sound so impressive. I could run 10 and a half miles. Give me a few months. I'm sure I could get that done, you know. But here's what's impressive about what Emmett Smith did. Every 4.5 yards, there was someone there to knock him down. For 10 and a half miles, every 4.5 yards, there was a man of at least 200 pounds trying to push him down into the ground. Here's the thing I want you to get about this. It doesn't matter how many times you're knocked down. What matters is if you get back up again. And Emmett Smith kept getting up again and again and again. Now why do I say this to you? Because some of you have given up. You've given up on yourself. You've given up on your dreams. You've given up on your marriage. You've given up on your kids. Get back up again. And why would you do that? Because he got back up for you. Because three days later, he rose again from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave. And he wants you to have perseverance so when this world knocks you down and you don't think you can get back up he grabs a hold of you and he says come on it's just a little bit farther we'll do this together and don't forget that there is a crown awaiting you if you don't give up let's pray dear heavenly father I know there are people here in this room and at home that are just struggling. They're struggling in so many different ways. They're tired and they're weary and they're worn out. Their minds are filled with worry and anxiety and stress. Seems like every day something new comes just to push them down. And it's easy to get tired. It's easy to throw in the towel. God, give us wisdom. Show us how you want to use it to help somebody else for your glory, for our good. God, help us to focus on you. 
May we fix our eyes on you. Because you never gave up. You went all the way to the cross. You never gave up on us. You still believe in us. And you're still cheering us on. So give us your strength. Give us your power. Give us your insight. No matter what, Lord, may come our way. Give us the defiant faith that says, blessed be your name. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.